be blessed to speak for you for the first time this morning. I'm so glad I had a man ask me when I was preaching the gospel meeting at Whitson Place. He asked me, the elder here, um, would you speak this lesson here for Midway on this date, such and such date? And I said, absolutely. I would love to speak it. It's my favorite lesson, and uh, it'll never get old. Uh, I have to be honest. I'm sorry to uh, the, the youth. Um, I've already preached this lesson. They have heard it. Uh, some of you already have. But, um, friends, this is an amazing story, and uh, I can't wait to share it with you this morning. So without further ado, let's get into the lesson. I've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. So um, this man standing before you this morning was in the fifth grade when he sat down at his desk, and the teacher sat down a piece of paper on all the desks in the room, and she got in front of the room and she said, you know what, class, today we're going to write a descriptive essay. And what I want you to do is I want you to write about a tragic event that happened in your life. And when you write this essay, I want you to give me detail. I want you to do your best. And I'll set the timer, and when the timer goes off, I just want you to turn it in to me at the end of class. Can you do that? Just do your best and begin. And so I was excited. I knew exactly what I wanted to talk about. I was going to tell about the time I broke my arm when I was about 10 years old. It happened earlier on that year. I was jumping on the bed, and my, my cousin pushed me off the bed. I tripped over my own feet, and I fell, and I broke my arm. I got back on the bed, having no idea I broke my arm, but then I figured it out when my arm was looking a little wacky-doo on the bed. So I figured that out real quick, and the pain absolutely was searing. It was terrible, and I wrote about it, and I finished it in 20 minutes. And I wrote four pages. And I was so excited. I go to turn it in to my teacher and I said, Miss Runyon, here's my essay. And to my surprise, this is absolutely the scariest thing, I'll be totally honest with you, she starts reading it in front of me. And I didn't know whether to stay or whether to go, so I stayed there and she reads the entire thing. And she sits it down and she looks up at me with this disappointed look in her face. And I said, is there something wrong? And she said, Cole, you were supposed to write to me a descriptive essay. What you did here is not acceptable. You just merely told me what happened. What I wanted you to do was for you to be able to take my hand with your essay and to show me what happened so I can live it also. The path to the cross is a lesson I want to do just that. I don't want to tell you about it. What happened, this happened, this occurred, and then this happened. I want you to walk hand in hand with Jesus all the way to the cross and see the suffering, see the pain, and to be able to say, I lived it with Him. I saw it with my eyes. I want you to see it in high definition this morning. Real quick, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. If you remember in Acts chapter 8, Philip is preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch. And the eunuch is reading a passage that he does not understand. He's reading from Isaiah chapter 53, what actually... uh, Zach Blanton read for us, Brother Zach. He read for that this morning. He was reading from that passage. But I want you to drop down to verse 32. And this is what he was reading. The place of the Scripture which he read was this. 
He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shear, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And th- verse 34. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? He has no idea who Isaiah is speaking of. He has no idea what he's reading. So he asked, who is it? Don't miss it. If there was a time in the Bible where a lesson like this was preached, it's right here. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Isaiah 53 talks about Jesus, a man of sorrows, a man who was afflicted. He was pierced for our transgression. He was despised of men. He did not have a countenance. He did not have a physical appearance that would be desired of anyone. On him was laid the transgressions, the iniquities of us all. And so, Philip could have very likely preached a lesson just like this. So this morning, I want you to see the cross in high definition. And I want you to see that path and that suffering. But the first thing I want you to see is sinless Jesus. He absolutely came to the earth. He dwelt among us. He was born of the Virgin Mary sinless. He lived sinless. He died sinless. He arose from the grave sinless. And He ascended to the heavens sinless. So if you will, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And we'll be reading verse 15. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. You know, in the Bible, John chapter 8, verse 46, there were times where Jesus would stand before people and He would ask them, Which of you convicteth me of sin? And there was a silence. There was absolute silence. Nobody could. I'll tell you right now, standing here before you, I would not ask that question to my mom and dad. Because if I asked that question, my mom would speak up and say, Cole, I remember that time where you know you had that attitude and you didn't want to obey what I had commanded you to do. Jesus wasn't that way. Jesus absolutely was sinless from the day He got on earth to the day He left. So what do we take from that? There's no reason of guilt. There's no reason of guile. There's no reason that He should have been killed physically here on this earth. Jesus was sinless. What else do we need to understand? This was a singular sacrifice. Stay in the same book and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 4 reads, For it is in For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Under the old law, they would have to sacrifice animals to atone for their sins. And N.B. Hardeman made the hypothesis. He said that not one drop of blood, back in the old days, not one drop of blood could take away one sin. It never could. But if you read in the same chapter, in verse 10 through 12, listen to this. 
by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down on the right hand of God. Take these from this passage. Once and for all. They offered continuous sacrifices over and over again under the old covenant and it never took away sins. Jesus Christ comes to the earth. He sacrifices Himself once and for all. And then if you notice the last verse, He sat down at the right hand of God. You know when you come home, I'm going to talk to the dads here in the crowd and the older men because this is so true and I think it's funny. You come home every single day from work. You're tired. You've absolutely given your all at work. You're a hard worker. You come home and you sit down and you know what I'm talking about, that recliner that you have in your living room. And you turn on the television and you watch the news or you do whatever you do on the television. But you have that recliner that you sit in. But what's different about you coming home after work and sitting in that recliner, we've well, got to go to bed that night, and you've got to get up and you've got to do the work again. Jesus Christ didn't do that. Jesus Christ ascended into the heavens. He sat down, and He's done. The work is finished. He doesn't have to go to work the next day. It was a singular sacrifice. Also, I want you to understand, it was a substitutionary sacrifice. I heard the story of an ancient king. And he comes before the people of the kingdom and he says, I have a new law. Hear me now. The law states that anyone who is found committing adultery or fornication, they will have both eyes burned by a hot piece of iron. That's the law. And ironically, about a week goes by and the doors of the castle open up and in throne was a woman and right behind him, wouldn't you know, it's the king's son. And the son looks up to the father, the father looks down at the son and there's much murmuring around the soldiers and the guards in the, the, the palace. And they say, you know what? I bet he gives him a pass. I bet that he doesn't make his son have to pay the penalty of the sin. And so the king stands up and he says, the law clearly states that two eyes should be given for this offense. And so what he does is he takes a hot piece of iron and it's got the red tip on it and they take that sun and they kneel him down, they ply open his eye and they hold it and they take that red hot piece of iron and they place it against the flesh of his eye and he is in agony. And they hold it and he is screaming. He's screaming and for a time they keep it on there and then the king says, you know what, stop it. Stop it right now. Stop. And the guard said, you see, I told you he's only going to make him take just one eye. The king walks down to his son and stands before the people and he says, the law clearly states that two eyes should be given. And I as king reserve the right to give my own eye in the stead of my son. 
And so what they do is they take the king, they kneel him down, they plow open his eye, and they do likewise unto him. And he's in agony, he loses his eye, but do you see the lesson? The substitutionary sacrifice. If I can give you an illustration that's close to the crucifixion, if I can give you an illustration, I I would, and I'm going to. If you look at Luke chapter 23 and Mark chapter 15, we have a wonderful display of this. Do you remember Barabbas? Do you remember who he was? He was a robber, he committed treason, and he was a murderer. He was absolutely guilty. And I'll tell you this right now, he's likened unto us. We stand guilty before the judge. We are sinful. We're not perfect. We need a Savior. Jesus is in a whole different category. He's never sinned. We've already talked about this. He is absolutely perfect and holy. And Pilate comes before the Jews in Mark chapter 15. He comes before the Jews and he says, It is a custom at Passover that I release to you one prisoner. They were both prisoners. And he says, Who do you want me to release? Jesus, the King of the Jews? Or Barabbas. It doesn't take them one thought to say, release to us Barabbas. We want Barabbas. You know the robber, the one who committed treason, the one who killed people? We want Barabbas. And Pilate goes, whoa, whoa, hang on, hang on a second. You're going to let me release to you Barabbas, the guy who's guilty, obviously, but then Jesus here, what has he done? He's told me, I've already judged him, I find no fault in him. He's probably the most righteous man who've ever lived. He's never committed a sin. I've never seen him transgress the law. You want Barabbas? Don't read me wrong when I'm preaching this lesson. I'm not mad that Jesus had to die. I'm not upset that he had to die. I'm so thankful that he had to die for us, that he was willing to do that. But it breaks my heart in the manner that it was done. Give to them Barabbas. I'll take his place. Even though I'm the one who should be released. Give them the guilty one. I'll take it on myself. And I'll be that substitute for him. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7. This was a suffering sacrifice. This is absolutely amazing. I heard a preacher once say, you know, we can't, we can't really emphasize the physical sufferings of Christ because others went through the same punishment and they, they were, many others were crucified. So we really can't say that, that we should accentuate that and emphasize that. Because others went through the same punishment. I would agree with that statement, but it could be modified. Because we can't act like the cross was the only thing that Jesus suffered. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 says that He was offering up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto the One that was able to save Him from death. This was happening in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I'll tell you what, seeing Jesus crying doesn't make me appreciate him less. It absolutely makes him appreciate him even more. He was in the flesh. 
That's what the passage wanted to emphasize. He was in a fleshly body. So everything that was done to him, if it were done to us, it would hurt the same exact way. And also you have to understand that a process called hematidrosis was happening. This process is where small capillaries in the sweat glands would burst and they would leak through the pores of the skin, therefore making it possible to sweat blood. This was happening strong. Encyclopedia actually has recorded cases of this happening under certain amount of stress. And I can't tell you someone who was under more stress than the Son of Man who was about to take on the sins of the world. He prays the prayer in Luke chapter 23. Father, if it's possible... Please let this cup pass from me. But thank our Lord that He said this. Nevertheless, let not my will, but Your will be done. John chapter 19 verse 1 tells us that Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged Him. Well, Cole, what is a scourging? They would take the victim, which would be Jesus, they would strip him of his upper garments, and there would be a vertical beam. And they would take him to that beam, and they'd tie his hands up over his head to the beam. He's fastened to that beam. He can't run. They would take a whip. They would take the flagellum, and what was attached to the end of the flagellum was broken up sheep bones, sharp pieces of bone, and metal balls and lead balls that would cause deep bruising and absolutely excruciating pain. They would take it and they would bring it down on the back of our Lord over and over again. And VP Black, gospel preacher, said it best. He says, they did this until his skin was hanging in long ribbons. His shoulder, belt, his shoulder blades looked like white caps in a sea of blood. And with every blow, the muscles did quiver. The flesh did tear and the tissues did mutilate. Jesus falls to his knees. He's fallen in a pool of his own blood. He's there weeping because of the pain. And why? It wasn't anything that he had done. We've already discussed this. It was what you and I have done. Our transgressions, they were laid upon him. They would take Jesus and they likely they would probably had to have dragged him into the praetorium. The praetorium is the governor's palace, Pilate's palace. And they would take him in there as they're dragging him in there because of the, the massive amount of blood loss. They're taking him in there and they think, you know what, let's have a little fun with him before we send him to the cross. And so what do they do? Well, they take him into a hallway and they robe him with this scarlet robe and they give him a reed and they, they twist together a crown of thorns. I don't want you to think that they just gently placed it on his head. It is clear that they would have absolutely pushed it into his skull. The head is the most vascular part of the body. It bleeds the most, has so many blood vessels and veins. He would have bled profusely out of his head. And they would begin to bow down to him and say, Hail King of the Jews! And they're having fun. Not, not to worship him, but to demean him. And then they would take a reed and then they would hit him upside the head with it. And they would, if you read your Bible, you would read about the slapping. 
They would blindfold him and begin to slap him and then ask him, guess who did it? Guess who did that, son of God? And then you would hear about the spitting. Imagine we took somebody out here, we blindfolded them, started to slap them, and then to spit over and over, just spit in their face. How demeaning is that? And they did that to Jesus. How embarrassing. He was on the throne. But yet He took the form of a lowly servant. And He took all that they had dished to Him. They take the robe off of Him. I'm sure the blood had clotted to the robe. The robe was able to, to clot to the blood. And they take the reed out of His hand and they place on His back probably over a hundred pound cross beam. And it's likely that they may have tried it, they may have not given it to Him, but it's likely that Jesus was not able to carry it because He's been up all night before going from trial to trial, being accused falsely by the high priest and by those who were leaders in the synagogues. He was accused falsely. He was going there not all night. And He had been absolutely demeaned physically. He's been beaten and absolutely embarrassed emotionally and he's tired spiritually he could have fallen beneath the load I remember that song follow me I love that song it's probably my favorite song that we sing but he said my feet were also weary I fell beneath the load they got a man Simon of Cyrene to help him carry it that's where we get that idea from it's a possibility Golgotha is in sight. Golgotha means the place of a skull. That's the hill that he will be crucified on. He's seeing it. He's walking up to Golgotha. He makes it to the top. And friends, this is absolutely, this is absolutely where I, I lose most people. When they led him away to be crucified, they get him up to the top of the hill. They lay him down on the cross. And then everybody just shuts off their mind there because we've all heard the cross. We know what happened on the cross. Everything I've listened to so far, but the cross, I mean, that's what, that's what he came to do. He's the Son of God. He could have taken away the pain. He could have minimized the pain as he was laying down on the cross. The nails, he, he didn't have to feel all that. The Bible's clear in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, that Christ suffered. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, Christ suffered. He learned obedience through the things at which He suffered. Yes, He was the Son of God. Yes, He was the one that raised the dead. Yes, He was the one that cleansed the lepers. The, the ones who had the palsy. Yes, He was the one who calmed the storms on the sea. But the hand that was outstretched was also the hand of a friend. It was also the hand of the one that held the little children and said, of such is the kingdom of God. It's the same hand of the little boy that was born in Bethlehem and held fast to his mother and loved his mother. And the mother loved him. 
they would take a nail. That outstretched hand. They wouldn't have considered the palm a part of the hand that would be sufficient to hold the weight of the body up on the cross for extended periods of time. But they would take the nail and they would use the wrist because the wrist has ligaments and tendons that are strong enough to hold up the body. And they would begin driving the nail into the wrist of Jesus. He's now fastened to the cross. They would do likewise with His feet. He would be raised up, raised up with the cross. And He would hang there for six hours. Crucifixion was so terrible. They would take individuals and cut out their tongues so they would be quiet, so they would not keep up all the people that were awake in the city at night. Jesus dignified. He's fastened to the cross. He's only made seven recorded statements. And He actually even forgives the people that are doing it. I have a question. Have you ever got sweat in your eyes on a hot summer day? I was mowing the grass just the other day, and I got some sweat in my eyes. I'll tell you, it was absolutely terrible. But I took my free hands that I had, and I wiped it away. And I massaged it, I massaged my eye, and it was better. And I was able to continue the work. You know what? When you have blood and sweat mixed together, and it drips down into your eyes, and you're fastened to a tree... You just got to deal with it. Read your Bibles and you'll read about the mocking. Hey, Son of God, come down from the cross. You've saved others. Why can't you save yourself? Maybe you're not the Son of God after all. The two thieves mocked Him. Christ hung there for six hours for you and me. And that absolutely breaks my heart. He yielded up His Spirit after the six hour. And my dad told me something the other day. And it has rung in my mind and I, I thought, man, I have to tell the people about what my father said to me. He said, Cole, do you understand that every single day Thousands to millions of nails are used to build homes, are used to build houses, to build buildings, and huge architecture. But it only took Jesus just about three nails to build a kingdom. We sang a song before this, and I'm so glad that Dax sang the song. He could have called... 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set Him free. And then the verse, the chorus says, but He died alone for you and me. Do you realize the significance of that statement? At any time, He could have ended it. I'm done Father, I'm done. I don't want to go through that. I've already felt the, the blows of the whip. I've already felt the nails. I'm done. Send them to kill everyone and set me free. Send the angels. It would have been easy. And I could, have, I could see the angels up in heaven looking down at Jesus and saying, You know what, Father, could you just let us go? 
Let us go. Let us save him. Look at him. He's, he's now being scourged. Look at him. He's now being going to the cross. He's laid down. They're driving the nails in him. Let us go. Come on, please. The work is done. Jesus, Jesus didn't stop it. Why? Why did Jesus not stop? Because the blood that drips down from the cross and puddles at the foot of the cross. Do you know what that spells out figuratively? The blood that falls down from the cross, it puddles there. If I could show you what that means, look to the screen. It says, I love you so much. Please come home to me. I've bought you. I've purchased this with my blood. Come home to me. I'd like to close with the story. And then we'll have our invitation song. The story goes like this. A little boy was growing up with his father and his mother. And their relationship was beautiful. If there was a movie about them, it would, they would depict it just a beautiful, wonderful relationship, two wonderful parents, and a wonderful child. Smart, bright, beautiful. Later on, the mother dies fatally of cancer. The boy loves to play baseball. His father has taken him every single day to go play baseball. We'll go hit in the cage, son. You want to throw? I'll throw. Even though I can't throw it as far as you, and even though I wake up every morning sore, I'll throw with you. I'll do whatever it takes to keep your mind off your mother. And so that's what they do. And the boy begins to absolutely progress in baseball. He begins to get scholarships. Scouts are coming to see him play. He's hitting home runs after home runs. He's absolutely the MVP. And he's daddy's boy. And his dad's so proud of him. Something happens though. 16, 17, 18, 18 years old. They begin to start arguing. I don't know what happened, what the specifics are, but maybe he got in the wrong group at school. Maybe he tried something that he never should have tried and he got hooked on it as soon as he did it. I don't know what the case is, but they started to argue. And the son started to resent his father. He started to despise his father. And when he turns 18, he packs his stuff, he takes his baseball glove, his bat, all his, all his materials, and he leaves. And he goes to the store and he says, I'm done with this. I don't care about it anymore. I'm going to sell it in this store. And he goes in and he sells it to a store. Everything that he had except his clothes and what he needs. And he goes and stays at somebody's house. He's absolutely a prodigal son. He lives a profligate life. He goes out and he's drinking. He does all the sinful things that absolutely would be a father's nightmare that's trying to raise his son to be a Christian. This goes on for days. For weeks, for months. Every single day, the father, when he gets home, he goes to the little boy's room that he once knew. He takes that little glove that he taught his little boy to catch his first baseball with. And he sits down on his knees and he prays by the bedside of that little boy, please bring him back to me. Please bring him back. Every night, he makes the little boy's favorite favorite food, mac and cheese. He sits it down by the table and he waits on the little boy. He's got the glove right next to him. He waits for that little boy. 
And he goes out and he gets so desperate, he makes these papers, these pictures of himself, and at the very bottom in the subtitles it says, I love you so much, please come home to me. And he goes all around the city, through the surrounding areas, and he posts that on every power pole, every wall that he can find, hoping that his son would see it and come home. One day the boy's driving down the road, and he sees it on the side of a pole, and he sees his dad. And he reads, I love you so much, and it, it breaks him down. He's, he's looking at his dad, and he's, I haven't seen him in a while, but it says, I forgive you, I love you so much. How can he forgive me? Look what I've done to him. I've thrown away everything, my, my life, my scholarships, all the things that are valuable to me, and what I would think he would be proud of me for, I've thrown it away, I've sold everything. But I have to go back. I have to receive His forgiveness. On the way home, He goes to the store that He sold everything and He's thinking, oh, I hope that they're still there. I hope that they're still there. He goes into the store and the store owner says, you get out of my store. I remember who you are. You sold me the things and then you started terrorizing the people and the materials that I have and the goods that I have in the store. You get out of my store right now. The kid leaves with tears. There's no hope. There's no hope anymore. It's all gone. He gets home, gets out of his truck, and he walks the path up to the front door. The only lights on in the house are in the kitchen. He knocks on the door. No answer. He checks the door. The door's unlocked. He opens up the door. And there sitting at the table is his father. His mac and cheese. And his father stands up. And he reaches behind him. And he sits it down on the table. And he says, Son, here's your glove. Son, here's your bat. Here's all your things that you sold. I went and I found them. You're home now. I forgive you. Please stay. Forget about it all. It's fine. I bought it back. A touching story. That's essentially what Christ has done for us. We've messed up. We've left Him and we've turned our backs on Him. That's what we did. That's what the Jews did. That's what we do every single day of our lives. But you know what Christ did? He came down to the earth and He said, you know what? I'm going to take it all the way to the cross. And I'm going to buy you back. I'm going to buy everything that you are. I want you to be my child. Come home. We're about to sing the invitation song. If you've realized that you've trampled the cross of Christ under your feet and you need to be restored, why leave today without making things right? Think about it. Why would you leave today with a Savior like that of being none effect? If you've never obeyed the gospel, what you've just heard is called hearing the Word of God. That's the gospel. Do you believe it? I absolutely do. Are you willing to turn away and repent of your sins and then in the watery grave of baptism confess 
His name and then be baptized for the remission of sins? Just in Acts 2, just like those Jews did? Why not this morning? What excuse would be good enough? Please come forward as we stand, as we sing.